conversations to give insight into human behavior and promote mental health wellness. I'm Dr. Kyle Osborne, and with my co-host, Dr. Jason Coleman, we'll discuss health topics, everyday life issues, and try to give you a better understanding of yourself, other people, and the world around you. So just sit back, relax, and hopefully you'll leave with some information that'll have you living your best healthy life. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back for your listening and viewing pleasure. It is the Black Psychologist Podcast, episode 57. We are here, back like we never left. I am one half of your humble and gracious host, Dr. Kyle Osborne. He is I, and I am him. And all of you know, I'm never here by myself. This guy that I'm rolling with, let me just tell you something about him. Well, he's got courage, and he doesn't like courage. He's got his doctorate, so you know he has crazy knowledge. He's over 18, but his eyes ain't green. He wears more gold than that man on the 18. I'm talking about none other than Dr. Jason Coleman. What is going on, good brother? Man, I'm good. I can't complain, man. You know, um, sitting around watching these Nets and these Knicks, bro. So just cooling, man. What's up with you? Nah, man, the same. You know, uh, catching up on some um, on some b ball, on some sports. Uh, it, I'm, I can only watch basketball now. You see to be because as, as yeah. you can see, who I'm rolling with with my football squad, we falling on hard times. Uh, we know you can't watch definitely them. Definitely falling, bro. So yeah, they have. Yeah, they have. so yeah, so we we gonna focus on basketball, but you know, it's it's hoodie season, so of course, you know, I got I gotta have it on, and uh, I'm gonna represent, yeah. but it's uh, it's dark days, bro. Winter is coming. In fact, winter is here. I'm not mad at you. You brave, man. I, you know, I, uh, I gotta re- represent my HBCU, the Mecca. You know, just because uh, homecoming 2022 was, you know, obviously yeah. epic. So, yeah. gotta represent a little bit. But and we out there. We seen you in the streets. You was out there like Diddy representing Donna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Listen, just connecting with some old professional friends and colleagues and. Having high-level conversations, that's all. That's what we're doing out there, man. As, yeah. as well you should. Continue to network, as we call it. Exactly. Exactly, bro. But as always, we want to thank everybody hanging with us, um, you know, <clears throat> watching the episodes, liking the videos, comment, and we appreciate everybody riding with us. Um, you know, through this time, again, you know, appreciate everybody being patient because, you know, we're both in the process of like going through licensure and stuff like that. So that's why the content doesn't come out as quickly as some people might like, but you know, it's part of the business. So we appreciate everybody hanging with us. takes the time to listen, you know? Absolutely. We absolutely appreciate all our first time and our long time <laughs> listeners and all the feedback. So continue to like subscribe, share, post all the goodness, even the bad comments. We love it. We love it all. You know, <laughs> just keep it coming. All streaming platforms and YouTube and everything else as we continue to grow and expand and uh, advertise and promote all the other things. Uh, we can't we're not here without y'all. So we really do appreciate all the feedback and all the support. And and listen, man, I want to also, you know, all the thank, you know, people overseas that, you know, listen and send messages. Um, so much, you know, appreciated to those people, too. 
whether it's a few or a lot, uh, uh, you know, a few or a lot, you know, we appreciate it. So that's right. We are internationally known. People don't know. Yeah, (laughs) we are are heard and seen across the pond. We're out here, you know, doing our thing. Jay, uh, also, we just passed um, Election Tuesday and everything. How was that for you? Because we all know that that can be a very stressful process for a lot of people. So how how was that for you on your end? No, it wasn't stressful for me, man. I got to work in 15 minutes because everybody was off. So hospitals stay open, man. So um, it was a good day for me. Early day. You know, what about you? Uh, Can't beat that. I was off. So I, I took that. Yeah, they they decided to give us up for that. <laughs> so I absolutely appreciated that. You know, I went out there, did my due diligence and casted my vote. Um, so, yeah, it was cool. And we're, you know, we're starting to see um, how these elections are unfolding and uh, the, the, the results for some states have yet to come in and the Senate and the House and everything of that nature. The thing that I'm most appreciated and happy about regarding this whole election business is the fact that it's over. Right. Because now I'm not getting any more texts on my phone. I'm not getting any other types of solicitations and flyers in my uh, my mailbox. I'm not getting I don't have to watch the the attack ads and other things like so. That's what I'm most happy about. It's funny because I was watching like when I was watching football on Sunday, it was like. I think I saw like four attack ads in a row. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was either Saturday or Sunday. But it was like, man, I'm sitting around, I'm trying to watch, I'm trying to watch Georgia. I don't care about any attack, about any political ads. If anything, it, it kind of made me, I don't know, dislike the candidates even more that they interrupted my my football with the, you know, back to back to back to back. You know, mm-hmm. it was like four or five in a row, bro. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They was they was they was uh they was throwing them out there, man. They was lighting them up. So, like you said, it was disruptive. Yeah, it was overwhelming. You know, like I guess it was the last. I understand because it's the last weekend before, but it's just like you get inundated with the stuff, man. It gets it gets out of control. Mm. It's overwhelming, man. Uh, it, it's the type of coverage, and depending on how these results, how they manifest, man, it's the type of stuff and uh, type of coverage makes you want to drink. All right. I didn't like it. So I'm happy. It's over. <laughs> uh, speaking yeah. of which, all right, there was a new study, according to a new study from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention that was published in the New York Times recently. An estimated one in eight deaths of American ages 20 to 64 in the years from 2015 to 2019 has resulted in injuries um, caused by excessive alcohol. So what they're saying is that the alcohol-related deaths are on the rise, right? Now, if you think that one in eight deaths between for individuals that are aged 20 to 64 isn't a lot, I want to caution you and everyone out there listening and watching that nearly a decade ago, a similar study found that one in 10 deaths for working-age people was due to drinking, right? So you got to think about it. So a decade ago, it was one in 10. Now the ratio has decreased and it's one in eight. So it's happening. It's more prevalent. So there was a study and in the study, it highlighted some different variations um, of alcohol effects across different states. So like in Mississippi, for example, alcohol accounted for 9.3 of working age deaths, whereas in New Mexico, it accounted for 21.7 
and one in three deaths of people ages 20 to 34. All right. That's a lot. It's a pretty high number. Um, also, the rates of excessive alcohol, and this is how they measured um, alcohol use with related deaths was most likely of climbs, especially within the past year, um, especially given the on with the, the onset of the pandemic and right. uh, a variety of data. And we kind of talked about this like way in the beginning of the podcast when we first started out that there's been a lot of data that showed that Americans drink more frequently and then deaths are, are narrower, I mean, are narrower due to set causes that were attributable to um, alcohol. And they said that it rose to about 25% in 2020, just alone due to the pandemic. All right. Okay. So, and this is the way that they analyzed it. Uh, they analyzed the data from the nation's vital records and identified deaths due to excessive alcohol use over the past five-year period. And it said uh, some causes of death, such as like alcoholic liver disease, uh, could be wholly attributed to excess, excess drinking. Uh, other causes of death were like from cancers related to drinking or injuries where intoxication was a known risk factor. Um, and so some of the fatalities due to excessive alcohol were based, uh, based on survey drinking behavior and sales and various populations. So Jay, I have to say, um, I'm I am surprised and how high the number was um, like I expected the number to be, you know, um, relatively high. But one in eight, I wasn't expecting right. um, that's abnormally high, I believe. Like, I feel like we're projecting in a very dangerous direction where you're starting to see that it's no longer that. Oh, well, if you drink excessively, you'll you'll die later on. Right. It's one of those for for so long alcoholism and then the effects of alcoholism or excessive drinking. It was, oh, well, you may get liver disease, but that's going to be later down the line. Right. You didn't see people getting sick or, or passing away um, until they were in their 60s, 70s or so. Right. Where all the damage yeah. manifested was more of a an issue due to totality. Now we're talking about between the ages of 20 and 64 which is relatively young. And that's a, right. a lot of people passing away due to different uh, issues related to alcoholism. So I believe that this is an issue that we really need to pay attention to and that we need to do some type of intervention overall in trying to decrease this um, or at least addressing it. You know, I mean, a lot of people have different reasons why they drink, but this is something that um, I believe a lot of different organizations, the government and whomever else is involved, even us as clinicians, that we need to pay attention to, man, because this is high and this is uh, very concerning. What did you think about the numbers? Uh, well, I didn't know they were this high, right? But, um, you know, looking at the numbers, obviously, they're kind of they're disappointing and a little bit shocking because admittedly, I didn't know they were this high. But when I started kind of looking at it, and more of like a big picture um, and more like kind of a broad perspective, I started thinking about it and I was like, well, what, what do you kind of expect, right? Because we live in the West, right? Um, United States of America, right? Um, there are a lot of accolades that we give ourselves, right? Whether we deserve it or not, right? Um, richest country in the West, most technologically advanced, we give ourselves a lot of those but we're also one of the most liberal countries, right? Um, whether you call these things traditions, customs, or just behaviors, alcohol 
and associations are tied into almost everything we do, right? Think about football without beer. All right, think about a barbecue without beer. Think about a wedding without a toast or wine. For some people, cheese without wine, right? College, being a freshman is associated with binge drinking, right? There's a lot of things, for all sporting events, right? Um, so just think about how some people's quality of life or how they would perceive a good evening out or or a lot of things if you took away alcohol, right? Because in some, some countries, alcohol is illegal, but they still have like clubs that you go to. It just ain't no alcohol, right? They still have concerts that they go to. They still have sporting events. Think about if they took that away, right? First of all, it would never happen even if the health risks, because we know how much beer they sell at stadiums. You know what I'm saying? So there's no incentive, right? And we know just from advertising alone, you know, the sports companies are getting paid, the advertising companies broadcasting on down the line, right? So there's there's not an, enough people that could die from this where we would have some type of blanket, um, you know, uh, advocacy or campaign to stop this. You're going to have health professionals talking about it family members, but there's not going to be any, you know, large coordinated effort because there's too much money. There's too much money tied up in these industries, man. Yeah. College football, baseball, basketball, weddings. I mean, you could just continue to go on down the line. We didn't even go into like entertainment and clubs and this and that, you know, um, so a lot of things socially in our society are structured around alcohol. We may think they're structured around other things, but the alcohol is one of the is one of the centerpieces. So in addition to the social component that you just mentioned, we also have to factor in that alcohol is used as a coping strategy, right, for various different mood situations or circumstances. Right. True. If you're having a great time, like you mentioned, at all those different various functions that you talked about, if you're happy, celebrate. Yo, let's turn up. Let's go do this. Yo, right. you just got a new job. Right. You just got a new this. Oh, man, let's go. Let's let's go turn up. Let's go do this. Let's drinks. Drinks on us. Let's go this. Happy hour. Right. Also, if you're going through a difficult situation, what's the first thing people want to do? Ah, man, you know what? Right. I'm going to go. I'm going to go drink. I'm going to go this. I'm going to take a couple shots. Try to forget my problems. Well, you know, like. No matter what the mood, whether your mood is positive or happy or whether the mood is you're grieving a situation or you're upset, it's associated with alcohol. Like it's a very accessible coping strategy or coping mechanism. Right. It's all types of situations where it's like, hey, you know what? Go do it. And then also it's just the accessibility to it. So like you talked about it just at various different functions, right? But you also got to think about it where it makes sense that it's starting to affect it at a more rapid pace into a nor like now you it's affecting like that working age demographic for the reason that it's in everywhere you go. It's in the supermarket. Right. So yeah. you got to think about it like more recently, just kind of sticking from like the Philadelphia tri-state area. I want to say it's not relatively new, but it's still somewhat new where they're having like beer and all different things in the supermarket. Now, I imagine, I think down south and in the Midwest, it's been like that for years. But I remember like first going into the supermarket, this had to be like four or five years ago. 
And I'm like, oh, but they sell some Coors Light in there. They, they sell Budweiser. Oh, yeah. What's going on? So you got to figure I mean, longer going to like, all right, I have to go to the restaurant to go to get drinks or I have to go to the actual liquor store. Like I can go while I'm getting my loaf of bread and my milk and my lunch meat. I can also pick up 12 pack, six pack, whatever the situation yeah. may be. Right. It's very accessible. It's right there. I mean, they got you can get it at the gas station. There are certain places. It's so accessible where you can just get it wherever you're at. I mean, that's you're right about that. And that's um again, we look at it right now, right? Like, I don't know what the app is where you can get liquor delivered to you. You know, like again in DC, you know, they got, you know, they got corner stores, but they got something that you call like the carry out, right? Where you go get food. It's usually like Chinese food or something like that. Um, and they got beer. So you get Chinese food, beer, sometimes they, and it's sometimes it's a convenience store, like all in one, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's one of them places where you go on, on a Friday, you get everything you need, you know what I mean? You go get food, beer, if you need uh, uh, whatever you need, you know, you know what I mean? So little, you know, little things that they sell at the convenience store, you get it there too. So um, again, I think like, what you're saying is, <clears throat> is valid and even in Philly, like I saw that I was shocked by that too, but not only that, like you can have your beer while you're eating in the, in the supermarket. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can sit there with your beer and drink it while you're eating food that you bought there. So again, um, you know, for, for most people, you know, who know, you know, and they can kind of manage that moderation appropriately, that's fine. Um, but for some people, you know, that availability might, you know, affect them negatively. So, and what I've also noticed, in addition, like you mentioned, that, like the, the companies, right? We talked about the financial component. A lot, a lot of different um, beverage companies are making an alcoholic version of their beverages, right? So, right, like right. Tropicana, or like more recently. So, went to uh, my daughter's. I uh, went to a tailgate um, last month, sometime. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like, I'm like, all right, it's tailgate and I'm getting ready to go. I'm like, well, what do you want me to bring? Right. I know everybody's bringing something. And she's like, oh, yeah. Right. She's like, yeah, you know what? Go get those Simply Lemonades. And I'm like, well, you mean like the, the regular juice? She was like, no, they got the alcoholic ones. She's like, no, they got the Simply Lemonade alcohol. And I'm like, really? She's like, yeah. Now, mind you, I'm thinking I got like, you know, skin in the game. I got experience. She's telling me about new alcohol. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just to your point. Right. Out, like college students, like they're aware they're in the know. And so like I tasted this. Right. And I got to admit, it's good, Jay. Like, I don't know if you had the regular <laughs> Simply Lemonade, just the regular. Yeah. It tastes almost just like it, the alcohol version. So okay. they're making these beverages even more like delicious where it's like, yo, it, it tastes like juice. So you got to figure where before, you know, I mean, I'm not a real big beer drinker, but like. You know, they're making these beverages, even with the alcohol content, more pleasurable. Where you can down them four, five, six, seven, eight cans. Where before, all right, you know what I mean? Beer was maybe that taste. So it maybe took a couple, maybe more difficult for you to drink. You can down these things like water, like it's juice, because they taste like juice. Now, think about it. Now, if I'm drinking these Simply Lemonades and they're in these big cans and they taste like just regular lemonade and I can, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying myself, I can go through four, five, six cans. Like it's nothing. 
right. what toll is that taking on your body, especially you're doing it every weekend or every so often. So these companies are absolutely capitalizing on these beverages and every one of them are making an alcoholic based version of whatever their primary juice. Wow, man. I agree, man. It's crazy. I mean, listen, we're going to see what happens, but um, when we talk about how much stress people have been around, have been under, you know, financial stress in terms of the pandemic, housing market, all of these things going on, I, I, I don't see it getting any better right now. So, yeah. And if anything, I think the study underestimated some of the true numbers of death, because just like in any study, we know some of the errors or some of the limitations of any study is one underreporting. Right. And there's a whole population of folks that they probably didn't even get a chance to or they weren't able to include in the study um, or not maybe even every cause that was related to alcohol. So this number that we have is high. But as you know, and I know in research, it's also uh, underreporting, and the numbers probably on a larger scale because they weren't able to include every population. So, um, yeah, this is something that I feel like, especially with clinicians, is something that I think we also have to be more aware of. Like when we're asking those questions, right? When we're meeting with our clients, we're meeting with our folks, and we're looking at their alcohol intake. Right. We have to kind of take a look at that because it's something that we're noticing based, especially on this study, that the number is getting higher and the intake is becoming more and more frequent and more prevalent. So um, but now you're right. These companies are not going to make it easy and they're definitely just going to keep shelling them out. Yeah, I mean, it's not they don't look at it as their problem. No, it's not. It's uh, (laughs) made me think of. you know, because they have so many different commercials and these spokespeople and things. It made me kind of think about how um, you remember the Marlboro man, the the smoke guy. <laughs> you know what he died from? Nah. Lung cancer. Oh. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, I, how ironic I mean, is that? Right. You got the Marlboro I'm... man who's, who's 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 advertising cigarettes died from lung cancer. Yeah, man. I mean. I, I get it, you know, but they, listen, they look at it differently, man. They look at it like it's a product that, you know, people have a choice whether or not they should, you know, they can indulge in. We know it's not that cut and dry, but, you know. Right. All right. So in another area of trying to provide an intervention, all right. Jay, they got everything on our smartphones, right? Where, of course, you got they can uh, you can find someone's location. Uh, you mm-hmm. got all types of situations where you can, um, you know, find not only your own location, you can find someone else's location. Uh, like you said, they got things where alcohol or food can be delivered to you, all types of things on your smartphone, right? But can smartphones help predict suicide? All right. All right so, Jay, so follow along, right? Let me, Possibly so, according to a recent New York Times article. Right, it details how a young woman who was recently discharged from an inpatient psychiatric hospitalization, um, and as a participant in this vast research project attempting to utilize AI to predict and prevent suicidal behavior. So, what she does is that she uses her phone and her Fitbit to submit data about her mood and other metrics to the Harvard researchers that are studying the suicidal behavior um, and suicidal uh, tendencies. So what she does is that she 
wore a Fitbit that was programmed to track her sleep and her physical activity. And on her smartphone, uh, there was an app that was collecting data about her moods, her movement and her social interactions. So each movement, <clears throat> each movement on each device was providing like this continuous screen. I mean, stream of information to a team of researchers at the uh, psychology department. So these biosensors uh, reported if and when her sleep was disturbed, um, if she reported a low mood, like on the questionnaire, and the mm-hmm. GPS shows that if she's not leaving the house. So she's like hasn't left the house for like a day, two days, or however long. They're tracking that. They can see how long that she's actually been in that one location, and. Um, it also shows there's like an uh, an accelerometer, right, that shows on her phone if she's moving around a lot. So that like suggests whether or would be indicative of whether like she's agitated or restless. Um, and then there's an algorithm that flags the patient and then it pings like on her dashboard. And then a clinician will reach out on their like via phone or a message to contact her when they see that these numbers are becoming concerning or, or past a certain, a certain threshold. Um, I like this. I like the direction that this is, um, you know, that this is headed in and what they're utilizing this information. Um, now I do had some concerns, um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, 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 I was waiting, I was waiting for that. I, I, I have some, some concerns and I, and I'm, of course there are some, um, you know, some some areas where I feel like this may not be as effective as they're hoping. But um, mm-hmm. I do like this. Um, you and I have, you know, we have both spent some time, you know, especially working in inpatient. We know how uh, severe and how chronic um, persistent mental illness is for individuals, especially those that um, are suffering from, you know, an increased depressive mood, chronic um, suicidal tendencies and behavior. Uh, very difficult for any any individual to experience that, especially for a long period of time throughout their life. And I am happy that at least they're, you know, attempting these different technical um, and technology based interventions, right, where you have this is a very high risk population. And so for them to be you're giving them some other different mechanism where, all right, you know, giving some information whether it be through the biosensors or whether it be through a kind of a self-reported measure or questionnaire that they're filling out. All right. They're thinking outside the box where they're allowing clinicians to be able to be more interactive and preventative as opposed to reactive. Right. Right. Waiting for this person, unfortunately, to attempt or have another episode and then they're rehospitalized. So um, I like I like the idea of it. I like um, the fact that they're using information for the reason that, I mean, shit, like we just talked about, our our, uh, our phones can pretty much do everything else. You know, right. commercials where the hell, the, if you get into an accident, the phone will call the police for you, right? It'll, yeah. it'll do all types of things. I mean, it's very, um, you know, intuitive for all these other different life-threatening situations or circumstances. So, um, I'm happy that, you know, the, that the mental health field is also starting to, you know, trying to capitalize and utilize the AI so it can be, you know, incorporated some life-saving measures. So um, I like, I like yeah. the idea of it, you know, I'm going to hear from you and then I'm going to get to my concerns because there are, there are a few of those. I mean, 
listen, I, the important thing about this, I think, is they was talking about, you know, 15 times the national rate, right, of people that are discharged from psychiatric um, facilities committing suicide, right, or attempting suicide, right, weeks in the weeks after discharge. And if you've worked in those places, then you kind of can understand why, right? Most of these people are going home to situations that aren't stable, not no jobs that are stable, relationships that aren't stable. A lot of times their mental health isn't even all the way stable. Um, it may be stable in terms of the lowest point on the baseline or the baseline of where they of functioning. Um, but they may not feel, you know, they stay, they may not feel right. They may still feel dysregulated, right? Or their insurance um, is saying this is all recovering, you gotta go. And that I was being nice, you know what I mean? But you you got right to it. <laughs> Keep it 100. So with, all of, so with all of these factors, right? So it makes these people obviously increasingly vulnerable, right? So they're not talking about sending police to their house. They're not talking about committing them involuntarily. They're talking about a clinician reaching out to them, right? Um, so I think that's a good thing, right? The people that they talk to in this story, we're talking about, you know, there was one quote, I think it's almost easier to tell the truth to a computer, right? This is essentially what we do when we give people self-report assessments, right? So think about, it's, it, it did, nobody would see the harm in sending your patients via, you know, some type of secure electronic communication CDIs to fill out, right? If they were high risk, right? As the, now, whether or not, how much liability that gives you when you get the results and all of those things. Let's take the legal stuff off the, off the table for a second. If we're just talking about the likelihood that a patient would reach out to you between sessions and the likelihood that you might get that information in an electronic survey, I think we all understand you would, you would probably get it from the survey, right? Because people you know, a lot of times when they're that vulnerable and they're going through those stages, the last thing they're going to do is pick up the phone and call somebody. You know what I mean? Right. Now, if they get a text, if they get, you know, something they can fill out, they might be more likely to kind of be more truthful. Um, and for anybody who doubts that, right, what I would cite as my anecdotal evidence is the last two years. How many people have we seen now? This program was talking about monitoring music and social media posts. I can't. And and how many people have we seen in the last two years who have posted their suicide notes to their Instagram page? A lot. And they're all in this 25 to 40 age group. You, mm -hmm. you don't see no people 60 years old doing that. You know what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is we may you may not want to accept it if you're over 45, but people under 45 are using social media to it can really give you an insight in terms to, of their emotional functioning and mood in the present day and time. Right. Um, so listen, man, I think it could help right now. We're, we're about to talk about the cons and the evasion of privacy and all of this. And I get it. Um, but we need to keep in mind that we are talking about a vulnerable population. So we have to protect them. Right. Um, but it's a vulnerable population in the sense of they don't have the same sense of support as we as we might take for granted, you know. Yeah, um, it's innovative. That's that's what I like the the most about it. That it is right. very innovative. 
it's real time approach um, that they're trying to use as much information that they're getting from the person um, to be as interactive as possible. Now, the concerns that I have are, again, like you you just kind of um, highlighted it briefly, is the intrusive component, right? The privacy component, right? This is this is very, very intrusive. Um, and there's also a lot of room for error, right? So if you're talking about, like, if you're talking about the, the person's movement, someone could be moving back around or moving around the accelerator meter that they called it for a lot of different reasons, right? So there is, I don't, I'm not sure how sensitive and how they can fine tune that and other different things. Um, but again, it's a lot of information that's being streamed from this one individual. and we have to ask the question, how much information is too much information, right? So, you know, there, I understand that we are trying to get information as a more of a protective factor for these patients. However, these patients also have lives. They also have the right to not have to report each and every movement or their mood or whatever, or what have you is, um, is being measured you know, they should have the freedom to not have that and have to answer to whatever device or whatever the situation may be. So there's the question of kind of the privacy in the intrusive factor, uh, which I could see, you know, posing as a problem because uh, it's like, well, how much information is too much information? Uh, another thing was it's self-report, right? So there may be a circumstance or a situation and we know how, um, you know, People vacillate. There may be a situation where the person is like, hey, you know what? Yeah, I want to be a part of the program. I'm, I'm all well. I'm all good to it. Sign me up. And then a week or so later, or depending on whatever, like you mentioned, is going on in their life, some different, you know, psychosocial factors is like, you know, what? I don't want to do this anymore. Or if this comes up and, you know, the the questionnaire pops up on it, they're like, mm, yeah, I'm not going to do this. Right. It's a lot of different things that they're relying on on the patient to divulge in or to, you know, share that information. And what if they don't, right? So it's a lot of different areas where they do are going to have to make some amount of modifications, but those are some of the concerns that I have because it's going to be like, okay, well, what about also the false positives, right? What if I mean, it picks up? I, see, I don't really have as many concerns because, and I read the part about the false positives because again, now, if they was if they were calling nine one one and sending ambulances to people's house and police to people's house and all of that, then I would have more concern, right? But it seems like we're talking about support, right? So, at the very least, you're gonna have somebody reaching out to you, and if and if you're lucid and in your right mind, then you tell them traditionally, then everything is okay, and you go back to what you're doing, right? If you're not in a suicidal or state of mind where you want to harm yourself. The second thing I would say to keep in mind is that, remember, it's voluntary and this is an at-risk population, right? So from what I read, it's pretty, it's, it's a very, pat. it's a lot of information, but it's a very passive thing. Like, like they said, it's a Fitbit, like wearing a Fitbit. People monitor their steps. Then there's nothing they got to really do to the Fitbit. And, and what I would say is, it's not anything that we kind of don't do now, right? Because there are programs and apps and all types of stuff where people that have diabetes, right? Or people that have issues with blood pressure or different, you know, they, 
have monitors elect that send information to the computer that their doctor then monitors. You know what I mean? So all of those things are voluntary. There's no doctor that's going to make somebody that can make somebody do that. You know what I mean? It's, it's a benefit for your health and it's voluntary. And I just think, you know, um, again, if a person agrees to it, you know, I, I don't really see as long as they're an adult with the capacity to understand, you know, uh, and they're not forced and they can comprehend it. I think it's just like any other therapeutic tool you would use, you know, as long as you use the correct consent, then you're good. So so something that comes up for me is, well, what if you forget to put on your Fitbit, right? So what if, or the Fitbit dies or you didn't charge it or what have you the same way, like with an Apple watch or anything, um, Mm -hmm. what then, right? Because maybe you're not getting the information. Does that set off alarms? Does that, it's a, I mean, I'm sure you know, so do you get the call? Do you not, not get the call? Not, like, you know, because it's not not because how they explained it there. Even the woman that went through the program, she was saying, you know, when she had when her vitals were sending off certain signals. Right. You know, you were talking about like the excessive movement and all the other things. Right. The counselor called her. So it's a supportive thing. Like I said, if it was a direct if it was as direct as only analytical right and to what that says to me is they're using the analytics right they're using the technology and then they have a person that's making a clinical decision right it's not a machine making a judgment this person is having a crisis we need to intervene now no the person is making it the person is watching all this information and then following up with their patient and making a balanced judgment now if the program was Boom. When they reach reach this threshold, the cops get called. Somebody comes to your house. Boom, 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 boom. I'll be totally on board with you. But it's a person. It's the same way we get assessments. Right. And an assessment may spike in a specific area. And you may look at it, have doing the background information, having done, you know, the interview. And you're like, oh, this is the reason why. So it doesn't send you in that direction. This is the reason why. So I, that's why it doesn't, you know, really concern me as much because it's a person that I assume is going to be licensed and qualified, you know, that's going to reach out to the person and then assess the situation. Yeah, I like, um, you know, I, I, I hope this is something that more hospitals or more um, organizations put into place. Like you want to see again, more innovative ideas. What are some ways that we can continue to follow up for the reason that a lot of times, you know, being an inpatient clinician, you don't know how well your client is doing or your patient is doing when they get discharged, right? You hope that things are going well, um, but you know, if they've returned that obviously things haven't gone well or something somewhere along the way, there was a setback, there was a relapse or whatever the situation may take place. Um, I like this component for the reason that, again, one, it's, you're still able to kind of monitor um, the progress of, of someone. You're kind of seeing, you're able to kind of track how they're doing. And then it allows you, if everything goes well, um, you have a clinician or someone that's qualified that's able to touch base when they start to see some of these um, areas starting to spike in some other different concerns or different worries, some areas. So that's what I like about it, because now it's not just like, all right, 
your discharge. Good luck. We've given you resources. Here are your uh, here's your your medication for 30 days. Here's your uh, we gave a list of clinicians we want you to follow up with your your uh, your your group therapy, all these other different things. Right. Your case manager, so on and so forth. We're not just kind of leaving them to their own devices. It's like, OK, we'll give you these resources, but we're also able to kind of see how you're doing. And if you dip or some other different areas become worrisome, you have someone that's able to check in. So this way, hopefully we can get there, we can intervene and treat them prior to them needing that inpatient level of care. So that's what I like most about this aspect is that I'm happy that certain psychology departments are starting to think outside the box and starting to incorporate some different interventions for, and some, and like you said, some additional resources and support for the individuals, especially right after they've gotten discharged. Because you know, and I know, like you talked about, you alluded to it, is that that's a very crucial time period. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I like it. You know, there are some areas, again, I have some concerns. Um, at the same time, I'm sure they got a handful of folks that are, are working on some of these same areas because I mentioned an article, some of these similar concerns. So we shall see. Sure. But uh, kudos to the Harvard uh, uh, psychology department. I like, I like what they're doing. Yeah, I like I like you, too. So we'll follow up on that. Definitely. Speaking of psychology. All right. Dr. Hillary Cawthon. I hope I'm saying her name correctly. All right. Call Cawthon. I'm going to go with Cawthon. Let's go with that. All right. So Dr. Hillary Carlton is a Austin-based sports psychologist. All right. Now, we just talked about it. Um, basketball season is upon us, Jay. All right. And uh, mm -hmm. you and I are catching some games out there. We're enjoying ourselves, engaging in some good old self-care by watching some sports. Right. Good old NBA. <laughs> However, seems like there's uh, something afoot down in San Antonio Spurs area land. All right. So the psychologist that I just mentioned was a formerly employed sports psychologist for the San Antonio Spurs. However, she just filed a lawsuit against the Spurs and former NBA guard Josh Primo last Thursday, uh, alleging that the organization had ignored her and attempted to cover up her repeated complaints that Primo, who was recently waived by the team, um, whom she said exposed his genitals to her on nine separate occasions during their one-on-one -on -one sessions, all right? So I'm going to read some statements just so we can get a uh, more comprehensive picture of what's taking place. All right. Okay. So uh, Dr. Carlton was contracted uh, with the Spurs in the beginning of September 2021 and first reported to Primo uh, or, or first reported Primo to the team management in January of 2022. So per the suit, she filed that um, numerous complaints with the team's leadership about the alleged sexual misconduct. Uh, she said she met with multiple members of the San Antonio organization, including the Spurs general general manager and um, the HR. She said she met with the general manager in March of 2022, uh, though nothing was done about Primo's behavior. She also met with the, the Spurs deputy deputy general uh, counsel and head of human resources in May. And she says, according to the lawsuit, HR informed her that despite her complaints, Primo would continue to participate in team activities, though they later in, um, told her in June of this year, uh, they said that Greg Popovich, uh, the coach, was also aware of the complaints and accusations 
and he wanted to do right by her, quote unquote. So in July of this year, the Spurs did not allow her, Dr. Carlson, to participate in the summer league and told her that she was unable to do her job in a professional manner due to what was now a lack of trust between her and the team. So she held a press conference last Thursday uh, to announce the lawsuit and said that there will be a criminal complaint filed for the multiple counts of indecent exposure. So Primo, all right, the former player, his attorney also released a statement in response to the lawsuit and maintained his client's innocence, stating that the client never intentionally exposed himself to her or anyone else and was not even aware that his private parts were visible outside of his work short, outside of his workout shorts. He said he's now being victimized by his former team appointed sports psychologist and who is playing to ugly stereotypes and racially charged fears for her own financial benefit. All right. He also released in his statement, he said that I know all of you are surprised by today's announcement. He said, I've been seeking help to deal with uh, previous trauma that I suffered, and I will now take time to focus on my mental health treatment more fully. I hope to be able to discuss these issues in the future so I can help others who have suffered in a similar way. I appreciate the privacy at this time. All right. And not to be outdone, the Spurs, of course, went into self-preservation mode and responded to the lawsuit in a statement of their own on Thursday. They said that we disagree with the accuracy of the facts and details and timeline presented today. Um, they said, while we would like to share more information, we will allow the legal process to play out. Our organization remains committed to upholding the highest standards and will continue to live by our values and culture. All right. Jay, that was a lot. To this, sure. you say what? Because this is quite a... Uh, this, this... There's so many angles to it because there's so much information. So, uh, I mean, I, first, we got to recognize that this is still in kind of being litigated, right, and investigated. So mm -hmm. he has a, a story. She got a story, you know. Um, but the facts of it are, are definitely troubling, right? I had to kind of look up. And the reason why is because like, I, I wanted to know, like, what, I thought it was relevant, like what performance psychologists actually do, right? And what the reason why he was seeing her for, or what it was, right? So obviously, you know, what I got is like, you know, they help athletes reach peak sport performance, but they can also help them deal with other things. So like criticism from coaches, anxiety, trauma, like you said, communication, not like not sexualized, inappropriate sexual behavior. Right. So that's what I, why I was wanted to know. Right. He didn't go for inappropriate sexual behavior. So what that would say to me and we're just speculating about things that were is that. When this happens, right, when something like this happens. I can't really speak for her or her experience, but they said this happened nine times. Right. So if he's coming to deal with trauma and he exposes himself in one session. He has another, there's another problem. You know what I mean? And if, and if my area of expertise is performance, like I'm not blaming her, but what I'm saying is it seems like there's a failure at a bunch of levels, right? Um, she says she, she, says she um, told the, the organization after the first meeting, right? So there's a, if she told the organization that, that if that's totally accurate, what she's saying, then 
there's an organization of failure because they fail to protect her, right? right? And then the next thing is us as professionals, right? We know that we have the right to refuse services to anyone if our if our safety is, is jeopardized. Someone exposing their genitals to you in a session, especially if they're not, if that's not their reason for being there, right? It's not necessarily a, a teaching moment, right? It's it's over. The session is over, right? So again, not blaming her, but you know, if she reported them after the first session, it happens eight more times, and they still didn't respond. You know, we have rights too. We're protected and have rights too. So it just seems like a fair. It seems like maybe she was getting bad advice. Maybe somebody she count, counseled her and told her to try to stick it out. There's a lot of things that could have been going on. Maybe this was the first time she had a job like this, right? And she didn't, and she knew that this was going to happen, right? That she might get blackballed, right? So I don't want to just blame her, like, oh, you know, because I know there's a lot, there's probably a lot more factors involved, but that's why it's hard for me to just give you a hot take on this because there's so many different angles, you know what I mean? So I don't know, man. I I I think the angle that his lawyer took was despicable, right? Because he's, he's talking about racially charged, right. ugly stereotypes, right? Um, and for him to say, acknowledge that and, and then throw that not intentionally, right? You, and then add that part, you kind of see what, what they're going scorched earth, right? So, um, but I, I don't know. I just think it's, it's one of these things where we're going to have to see what comes out, you know? Um, cause there's too many layers to this, whether you blame the Spurs, whether all of the, um, obviously a lot of the blame is going to fall on him for his actions, you know, whether people were counseling her the wrong way in terms of staying in those remaining in those sessions, who knows, but it's bad, you know? Um, I think this circumstance or this situation does highlight, um, some experiences that we as clinicians sometimes find ourselves in. Right. Um, I don't think not to the point where it's this extreme. Um, I think this is absolutely a more um, extensive situation. However, this is an issue um, in regards to say a client's uh, behavior during the course of treatment that can possibly be an issue. And that's something that sometimes clinicians have to redirect or counsel in real time, right? And if it's not, if the behavior isn't curved or it does become a safety issue, yeah, we absolutely have to, um, one, take it to the next level because our safety is being, um, could be jeopardized, right? Could be at risk. So whether, right. you know, we're talking about a client that is verbally abusive or vulgar or becomes physically aggressive or in like in this situation is uh, the behavior is inappropriate, right? All these other different things that, you know, clinicians uh, deal with at, from time to time, depending on the client that they have, um, because you don't know what a client is bringing into the session, Right. We don't know, even though, of course, we go through the session and we gain a background and we gain history or if the person is being referred, um, you still don't know what that person's prior experiences 
of treatment is, right? We don't know what went right. on maybe in their previous relationships with their therapist or if they've never been to therapy before, or or like you mentioned, it may be a more specialized treatment as it is with, it sounds like in this situation, because this is a sports psychologist and, you know, again, it's performance based, right? It's making right. sure that this particular athlete is able to perform at their highest regarding their athletic ability where it's serving its purpose for the team. Um, but yet and still, these situations take place um, and they're not talked about as much in regards to, you know, when clients are behaving inappropriately or disrespectfully. Now, again, we have to go based off the information that things are being reported um, of how she handled the situation and he's maintaining his innocence. And then the Spurs, of course, again, are going to go into self-preservation mode and release their statement. Um, the number one goal, like you mentioned, is safety. Right. As a clinician, we have to remain safe. No treatment can take place if we feel like um, any type of we feel like we're being harmed, disrespected, anything of that nature. Right. If our safety is going to be compromised. Um, so if she's reporting like she's, you know, uh, like she mentioned in her lawsuit that, hey, um, this has been happening in an ongoing situation. One, yeah, you do have to question and kind of wonder what the motivation of continuing to meet with this particular client, uh, because it can it. There's a, a power differential, right? You're talking about someone possibly, again, this is an athlete, and I'm not sure how old she is. So we don't know sure. if it's a situation where she's um, where she's able to, or she may be fearful of redirecting kind of in um, real time due to maybe just kind of, there's a lot of different things at play. Uh, what I am, I'm definitely going to call bullshit on his particular defense. You're not going to sit here and tell me, Jay, that you walked in to the, you know what I mean, to the office, and I don't care what shorts you're wearing, your workout shorts, your ball shorts, your sweatpants, I don't care what it is, and you're not going to sit here and tell me that you didn't know that you was exposed. All right? We're going to look, let's call it what it is. I would love Nine to times. more profound, articulate manner. However, I cannot. Yeah. Like, you know and I know, just as men, okay, you know when your equipment is out. Yeah, right? you know when you're hanging out, man. Right. So we're not going to sit here and act like, hell, oh, I didn't know whatever the situation is. You know, we're not, we're not going to do that. All right. I understand his lawyer or his his legal representation has to, you know, provide some type of defense. But we can I don't know. I feel like you could come up with something a lot more believable than that. Right. You're not going to come and say, it's like, again, you're not going to just sit here and be like, oh, I didn't know. All right. Not going to do that. So that's why I, I feel like I'm more, at least right now, with the information that's that's presently available to us, I'm kind of leaning more towards her situation for the reason that if that's the is that your only logic that you're saying is that oh he didn't know. And then oh, I came into this like, leaning leaning towards her side of it just because yeah. it just listen, it more than most likely, like listen, she was trying to do her job. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it would be, it's possible, but it's highly improbable that she would make all of this up, you know, essentially fire and blackball herself for what reason? You know what I mean? It's it's not a money ploy because, again, she's done, I'm sure she didn't spend all this time trying to elevate herself through all of the, I'm sure, other lower positions that she had to work her way up through. To get this job, which is one of what, 30, 40, whatever, um, 
to set it all up so she could sue the Spurs. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it it's I'm, I've been leaning towards her, you know. And again, I don't fault her for continuing to see him. I think it was a poor decision because I think you put yourself and your safety at risk, right? Um, so I think maybe she got some bad counsel, or you know, maybe people do some questionable, absolutely questionable decisions when it's like when they're in that when they have to make that decision, right? This might be have been her dream job. So she might have been like, let me just put up with this guy for a couple more times and maybe he gets out of here and I can get back to normal land, right? Um, and maybe it didn't end up like that or it just progressively got worse. Or it um, could have been so a I, situation or maybe being that she reported it. Like she, like if you're bringing it up in January and then like right, you're meeting right, with right, him right. in March, it might have been a situation where the Spurs are like, oh yeah, go now talk to him, it's fine. We need, yeah, you can just continue to meet with him, right? So it might have been that particular situation where they're saying the situation was handled or he's being, you know, it's been addressed. And then up oh, here we go again. Yeah, now, and we, you're right. No, you're right. You're right. So and we don't know how often they would meet. So true, true. Um, so that that plays a part too. Um, but again, you know, um, this is going to be one that's not going away, right? Because she's surely not going to drop her lawsuit. Um, I saw the sports psychology, you know, association is behind her in her state. Um, and he's certainly going to try to defend his reputation, whatever's left of it. So, you know, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, you know, it's tough. Um, I think that's something that um, they don't really speak or talk about too much. I mean, I think they they, you know, they mentioned it, of course, while, you know, while we were taking our graduate courses. But this is also something that just as a clinician, you have to know where your boundaries are. Right. You have to know what your willingness to put up with and where do you draw the line as far as your safety measure. And, and you have and that you have rights. Absolutely. As the clinician, same way the patient has rights. You got rights, too. Absolutely. So um, to definitely any young clinician in training or any novice clinician, it, it's a situation where your safety comes in first. There's no way you're going to be able to treat the client to the best of your ability if you feel uncomfortable, right? And we we're not obligated. Safe, but it's like, if you feel uncomfortable, like I'm sitting in front of a person and I don't know whether this, this individual is going to be inappropriate or not, especially sexually, then yeah, you know what? Like you said, you're getting that consultation. And even if the consultation doesn't feel comfortable to you, you like you said that you have a right to say, you know what, I got to refer you out. We have to terminate treatment. You have the right to terminate bro, treatment if you feel like your safety and things are being uncomfortable. Bro, and I'm going to be very honest. We're not punching bags, right? So whether you want to turn something that's inappropriate into a teaching moment for your client is entirely up to you individually and whether or not it fits your style as a clinician. Because if you feel like your client's cursing at you, in session is inappropriate and you don't curse at your clients and one of them do it and you feel like ending the session, guess what? In the session. Because for some people, that's going to make them feel unsafe. That's not, that's going to make them perform less than their optimal level. Now for me, it wouldn't really bother me if the person could get it together when I redirect them. Right. But for somebody else, if that makes them feel threatened, you don't have to sit in a session and deal and feel like that and deal with that. But just because of the client, no, the session is over. I have had times where I've had to end sessions with children, adolescents, and adults because their behavior was inappropriate, oh. right? Because 
I got to control my reaction no matter what, right? I'm expected to maintain a certain type of decorum and professionalism no matter what, right? So that includes boundary setting, right? Which means that you may have to end the session. You don't have to explain to everybody why and walk them through it and hold their hand. This is therapy, right? This isn't kindergarten. And people understand more than more, most of the time, 90% of the time, the person who does one of those things will be aware of it. We're not talking about somebody who's hallucinating, no. right? We're talking about somebody who intentionally does something disrespectful, right? To push the boundaries. And if you're the type of therapist where you're like, listen, at, these are the rules in the beginning. This isn't what I do. It's all, I'm not, the relationship isn't over, but this session is perfectly within your rights and you shouldn't feel bad about it. Absolutely. Because, so. you know, you, you know, so because there's an expectation of professionalism that you got to uphold at all times. So you know, and what do we tell clients, right? We tell clients that treatment is a collaborative process. Okay. So the same manner and respect that we are providing our client and our patient, we expect that same, you know, respect to us. That's just the way it works. And so, Absolutely. Now, after you redirect, I mean, again, everybody, you, you figure out your style as a clinician and what you're willing to, to put up with given the circumstances. Um, but, you know, once you redirect and it continues to happen, nah, you got to cut that short. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, I, I hope if it is how she has detailed in the lawsuit, if that rings true, if that's accurate. Good for her. Um, I'm hoping that uh, she gets whatever is rewarded to her. That's fair. The criminal charges, all these other different things, you know, because if this in the Spurs again, and it, it's unfortunate that we've seen a lot of different organizations, you know, cover up or say that they're doing the situation and they're pro player and they allow their players to kind of get away with these different types of egregious behaviors. Um as it pertains to them interacting with various clinicians, whether it be your massage therapist, whether it be your psychologist, whether it be all these other different clinicians and medical personnel that are coming in and providing a service. Unfortunately, that also contributes to the power dynamic, right? If you have an organization that says, yeah, you can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want, such and such. Nah, they're not going to say anything. We'll handle it. Right. Because that might be the thing that they're telling Primo. Oh, she said this. I don't know. We'll worry. We'll, we'll fix that. Right. So if you're entitling or empowering these players, again, that contributes to that power differential that you're coming in. You're still coming in where you have a male athlete and you have a woman that's going in there. She's your, your clinician, right? So there's still the physical power dynamic into that and that plays, right? We've always talked about when you come in a room, there are dynamics that are at play in regards to just the the affect as far as of, of the office makeup and such. So um if this is, if what she says is accurate, hey, you know what? Good for her. I hope she gets everything and she takes them to the cleaners and criminal charges, whatever the situation is, because this isn't right. And it's not fair for any particular clinician to have to be subjected to this type of behavior. So, yeah. we shall yeah. see. Well, all right. Now, on the, on the opposite end of the spectrum in regards to treatment. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Since we've already talked about when uh when treatment goes wrong, all right, let's talk about when treatment goes well. Now, okay. more people nowadays, more than ever, are receiving treatment and counseling, all right, more than ever before. So, like in 2008, there's data that says that there were 30.2 million adults 
in the United States that were getting treatment. Now, fast forward to 2020, the number has increased to 41.4 million people are getting treatment. All right. And there's also been like this sustained effort over the past decade um, more to your dis, uh, you're trying to destigmatize ah, de mental health. Couldn't even get it out. All right. Mental illness. Uh, you're, you're seeing more promotion of mental health. Right. You're seeing uh, more activists and we're seeing more advocates. You're seeing celebrities. You're seeing local governments. Right. We talked about last episode. We talked about Meg Thee Stallion. You know how she's become an advocate right. of. Uh, what's my guy from um from uh from Superbad? Uh, what's what's my guy? Um, he's talked about um not doing. You talking any- about Jonah Hill? Yeah, Jonah Hill. He's talked about not doing any more pressers and promos for films because of his anxiety and impact that it has on him. So, right, you've seen this effort, especially over the past ten years, of promoting mental health and prioritizing your mental health just from various different areas, which is great. Right, it's been it's been a great effort. Now, Jay, is there a flip side to this new openness in support? Right, like, is it a if you're in therapy, you're good, but if you're not in therapy you're bad, right? Because there is this phenomenon, right? Where um, if you're in therapy, you know, you have, or you have individuals that go to therapy, but they don't really go for any particular issue, right? That they want to resolve. There's not really trauma or anything that they want to address. They just go because their friends are in therapy or their partner thinks that they should go or, you know, they think in some way that, you know, they receive the message that therapy is what they should be doing. Right. So it's almost mm-hmm. like, you know, it has therapy kind of become like one of those box checking situations. And is that moreover, do you think or why do people think that therapy makes you just a good or better person? Um, for me, it's a situation where I have noticed I don't want to say therapy is sometimes in some populations or kind of in some realms where it's become a fad, but there is absolutely a group of people that are just going to therapy just to go to therapy, right? They're just going, um, you know, there's not, they're not really going for any particular reason. They've, you know, they've just been told, oh yeah, you should go to therapy, so on and so forth. Um, For me, I feel like Therapy is a wonderful thing, right? I'm going to try to be unbiased, right? I'm going to try to separate it just because, of course, of I feel like therapy is something that everybody can benefit from. You know, you don't necessarily need a particular reason to go, but I do feel like um, everybody, the same way how you go to your primary care doctor and you get like you have a wellness visit, I feel like everyone should be doing that for your mental health, right? For your mental health, for your mental well-being and your emotional health. So I, I, I honestly, I'm a, I'm a firm and big subscriber to, you should find a therapist or someone and just kind of do a check-in, right? And just mm-hmm. kind of just have a conversation just to see, hey, this is where I'm at. These are some of the things that are going on in my life. Could I benefit from, you know, treatment going bi-weekly or whatever the situation may be? Or, you know, hey, you know what? Things look good on this front. Here are some resources or here are some things that could be helpful for you in maintaining. Um, so that's kind of where I feel like that's kind of where I stand at, where I feel like therapy is beneficial for everyone and everyone should, you know, at least do like a wellness check. 
And once you've had maybe one or two sessions where, you know, and the clinician is like, oh, no, it seems like you're good. Like, you know, it seems manageable where you don't need some additional support or services from someone like ourselves, um, you know, then you're good. Like, you know, check back with me in about a year or so, uh, depending on what may have changed in your life. Um, So that's kind of where I feel like I don't feel like everyone needs like long term therapy, but absolutely a wellness check. is is useful and I think beneficial for everybody um, just to kind of check in and see where things are. Well, just, I'm going to talk about the first thing because you, you mentioned it. Um, I think, first of all, like we've been advocating the one reason why we wanted to reduce the stigma. One reason is because we wanted people to take more of a holistic view of their health overall. Right. And not just look at it from like the medical portion. Right. We wanted people to look at nutrition, you know, lifestyle, medicine, psych, uh, and psychology and mental health in, involved in that, right? Exercise, spirituality, all of those things, right? So I think that the fact that we've been doing that and it's been money invested in that, and then you've had events in the kind of environment which has validated the need for mental health, right? Pandemic, war, school shootings, you know, whatever you want to talk about, that's why you probably, why you see those numbers going up from 2008, 12 years, you got 10 million people who are acknowledging that they're in services, right? So I don't think it's a bad way. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing and I don't think it's a bad way to look at it. Um, I think the numbers will naturally go up when people start looking at it holistically, right? But there's, therapy should still, there's a way to do it holistically in the sense of we're talking we may be talking about like screeners and you know health fairs and mental health in schools and trying to catch more people right but when you're in in services it should still be productive right it should still have a goal right so you don't have to have a mental health disorder diagnosed to have a goal right you don't even have to necessarily be under current stress to have a goal right but you but a therapist is not your buddy Right. So it's not somebody you pay to hang out with. And I think that's where it kind of goes too far. But you cannot have a mental health disorder and still go to therapy to set goals for your year. Right. Make sure you're on track and achieving them. Right. Try to sort out if you might be having a distraction. Right. Or if you want to learn like strategies for stress management or different things. Right. These are all reasons you could go to therapy and be a normally functioning person, right? You could be a dad or a boyfriend and have, you know, uh, run your own company and and manage your finances fine and still need help, you know, kind of with some stress management strategies, right? But you go, you get them. Maybe it takes six weeks, maybe it takes six months, but after that, you go back to your life, right? I think what we're trying to get away from is the tendency of of how it's romanticized kind of in the media and some places where it's like your therapist is kind of like your buddy, right? Um, that's the opposite of it being productive and kind of goal orientated. So it's kind of be- an answer that's kind of between both of them, but I, I think that's where I'm comfortable, like incorporated as part of a lifestyle thing, right? But it should still have a goal and be productive, right? We can't get into the to the way in, into the mindset that your therapist is just another friend, you know, it's because that's not true. 
you know, so it's a pretty expensive friend, also, by the way. Um, and it's also I don't I don't want it to turn into a situation where it's an either or, right? Where if you're looked at, if you don't go to therapy, well, then then you know, you're not a good person or there's no way for you to become, you know, a good person and so on and so forth. Because that's what happens with um, like when you start to romanticize things or if you're going or if you like you said, some people or a group of people are going and then you have some folks that aren't going. Then you start to look at them differently and say, well, why aren't you? Or, well, if you don't go because it's been so beneficial for me. Right. One person may say and this other person may is not so much interested in it because, you know, maybe whatever is occurring in their life, they don't really have a need to, or they're not, that's not where their priority is. Then it's like, oh, well, you're not going to be a great person or you're not going to be able to do this where that's not the case. Um, I feel like absolutely every one of us can make improvements in just different areas of your life. Right. So like you mentioned, whether it's becoming a better parent, whether it's becoming a better employee, whether it's becoming a better, um, you know, uh, athlete, whatever, whatever area of your life that's important for you. Yeah. Therapy absolutely can be beneficial in helping you, like you said, become a better version of yourself in that particular area. Um, so yeah, it's very beneficial. It shouldn't be a situation where you're in therapy. Once you've been able to obtain those goals, you and your therapist collaboratively, it shouldn't be a situation. I feel like where you're just in therapy, just to be in therapy. Right. It shouldn't right. be a situation you and I have both heard or seen some, you know, older colleagues and some of our, our supervisors and some of our, our professors have told us about individuals that were in therapy for years. And it didn't seem like it was being very productive. Right. It's different from someone that has, you know, persistent or chronic mental health issues where they're constantly battling their anxiety or they're constantly battling their depression or maintaining, um, still continuing getting ongoing support for um, their bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, whatever the circumstances or their, or their trauma. Um, but it shouldn't just be, I believe, where you're just in therapy just because you've just gotten used to going and seeing right. like your therapist, where you're just hanging out. Like you said, it's, it's become more of a buddy situation and you're not really it's not being productive for the for the um for the client. So I think that's also, I think, a habit that maybe some people kind of fall in used to because it's just now that it's all right. Well, it's just now also just become a part of my monthly or biweekly schedule where I'm just I'm going to see my therapist or my clinician. And now it's just, it's become more ritual than anything. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that's just some of the danger where we kind of fall into where it's like, oh, you don't want some people looking at it. It's an and or or it's an all or nothing type of situation. Like it's beneficial in some areas. Like you said, you set goals, you go in there with, um, you know, goals that you want to achieve. And once you've been able to achieve those, then it's like, all right, well, if there's nothing else that really is uh, a need or an issue at the time then it's, all right, well, let me see how I manage with the tools and the resources that we have been able to, you know, facilitate with that person. And then you go about your life. The cool thing about therapy is that you can always come back later on if things change. Right. 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 And that's the thing that you and I have both told our clients is that, you know, once we're, we're at the termination aspect of therapy, it's like, hey, you know, we'll check in every three months or, you know, if things change, you can always come back. We're not right. going anywhere. 
Um, so I think when people start to understand that aspect of it, it doesn't have to be an ongoing or mandatory thing just for you to be the best person that you can be. I think then we're getting more into that space and it's not as forced because if, like you said, if you're forcing and they may mention this as an article, like if you're forcing your spouse or your partner to go just because you go and that person has, you know, was not willing to go, then it, it's not going to be successful because the person is not in that place where they're, you know, willing to receive or they want to help at that. No, I agree. I agree, man. Um, Again, it's, again, I, it, sh- it should be, People should be allowed to kind of go. You don't have to have a, a, a diagnosable mental health disorder, but it should be productive, you know, so. Absolutely. All right, uh, Jay, anything else before we get out of here? Uh, any uh, any mental uh, any mental health self-care activities you got up, upcoming, brother? Uh, well, man, you know, I always like going hiking and, you know, my thing is just, I like to get out in nature. So, you know, I'm going to get as many hikes as I can in before the weather turns for real. Um, but other than that, you know, my suggestion, you know, to people would be again, you know, just to make sure that you try to, you know, and you can adjust it by the seasons, but you want to try to have one or two cognitive and behavioral kind of strategies to relax yourself. So whether that's meditating, drinking a cup of tea, you know, or something active or something that's not as active, like reading, you know, you want to just kind of have a few things in the toolbox that you can kind of use because these are stressful times, you know? Absolutely. Especially as the holidays grow close. Uh, The holidays are great. Um, It's good to see people in your family, especially as we're, moving through this post-pandemic period. I know a lot of people um, for the past couple of years haven't been able to see family. Um, I know there right. are a lot of individuals that have um, said that they haven't seen, you know, maybe their grandparents or their uncles, maybe because they live, you know, in different states or it's a travel situation. And due to the, some of the restrictions, um, they haven't seen them in a couple of years. Um, I know last year was a little different. It was less restrictive, but you still have some had some people that were playing it safe. So I imagine there's going to be more people uh, traveling to see their loved ones if they haven't seen them yet already. Um, but it could be a very stressful time. Um, so for a lot of different varied reasons. So just like you mentioned, to make sure you prioritize your mental health, especially as we get closer and closer to these holiday seasons, um, make sure that you're also maintaining your health um, and paying attention to it. So, um, these skills that you just mentioned, Jay, are going to be even more imperative that you pay attention to and that you practice as we go through this, you know, late season, holiday season, uh, seasonal affective disorder, high prevalence season. Um, it's important that we incorporate some of those strategies that you just mentioned there. Well, you know, as always, just want to thank everybody for listening. Anybody who takes the time to listen, comment, like the videos, we appreciate it. And as always, remember, prioritize your mental health. Right. ShopMentalHealthClosing.com. Don't you that forget too. it. Don't just Definitely. feel good. You get to look good. All right. That's <laughs> right, how you prioritize right. your mental health. All right. Um, appreciate everybody tuning in and watching. Like, subscribe, comment. We love the feedback. Jay. Until next time, good brother, I'll see you. All right. I'll see you later, bro.